Good morning. My name's Chet. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, excited to get to study the Word with y'all this morning. Go to, grab a Bible and go to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one stuck under the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take one of these blue ones home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to own a Bible. Um, but we are working our way as a church through the book of Exodus, and we have slowed down over the past 10 weeks to walk through the Ten Commandments, and we are on the the 10th commandment. And so we are studying the Ten Commandments together and learning. One of the things that we've discussed throughout is that uh, we are predisposed as Americans to have a certain type of morality that makes sense to us. Primarily, we think of things as being wrong or right based off of does it hurt someone. So we even say things like do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone. We also consider things right or wrong based off of fairness. Um, but there are other categories that we disregard, but we need to. God's uh, approach to morality is broader than ours. It's greater than ours, and that we need to adjust and learn. And one of the things we've seen as we've studied the Ten Commandments is that God uh, promotes human flourishing through these Ten Commandments. That if we learned to practice these and follow these, life would be better our culture would be better. Society would be better. And that in the Ten Commandments, we see God's general design, and we'll see the rest of the law kind of grows out of these first ten. But we're on the tenth one, and it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And so it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, in order for this to be understandable at all, we need to know what the word covet means. Because if you have no definition for that, it's like, what, what did I do to my neighbor's donkey? What, what is coveting? Coveting is desire, wanting but it's a specific type of desire, a specific type of want, craving, that is, by its very nature, sinful. There are some desires that are not sinful. And so we're going to take our time this morning to try to understand where does desire, where does this want become sinful. So we're going to pray for our time, and then we'll pick right back up there. Lord, we ask that as we study your word together, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. As we study covetousness, which is primarily something that happens inside of us, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see it so that we might turn from it and turn to you. And we ask for your grace and your presence. And we ask that all this would be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are some desires that are not by their very nature, sinful. Jesus got hungry. Jesus in the garden prays that this cup would pass from him, that he wouldn't have to go through with what was about to go through, but he submits himself to the Lord's will. So just wanting a thing isn't necessarily bad. There are certain things that we're told in the Bible that are good to want, like it's good to want to be a pastor, it's good to want a spouse, it's fine to want children, like there's things that are good things that we should uh, work towards. But coveting is a desire that is in its own, on its own, sinful. And, and we're going to give a definition to it, but let's read this. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. 
You shall not want your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's this desire, this wanting that is sinful. And I think there's two ways that we'll see that it's sinful. One is, is a desire for something or someone that is not yours to desire. Your neighbor's spouse is not yours to desire. So by having any desire for your neighbor's spouse, you are desiring something that is not yours to desire, and therefore, it's out of bounds. But I think we'll also, as we study this together, see that it is desiring something that is good or okay to desire, but desiring it inordinately, desiring it too much. And that is where we suddenly have a lot of questions. Because this commandment is distinct from the other ten. The other, or the other nine. This is the tenth one. There's not another ten. You can watch someone commit the other ones. You can testify to it. You can see it happen. You can, if you practice one of the other ones, know, yes, I stole that. You might have some questions about whether or not this was slander or gossip or whatever, but you, you, there's something that's physically taking place. You're speaking. You're, there's words being exchanged when you lie about somebody, when you steal something, when there's a murder. The Tenth Commandment happens inside of you, and it changes our understanding of the Ten Commandments drastically. God is giving the law to the people of Israel, and he's telling them things like, you're going to worship me, you're not going to have idols, there's going to be a day of worship set aside, you're going to, be, uh, you're going to honor your mother and father. <laughs> Just helping y'all out since the kids are in here this morning. You're going to honor your mother and father. You don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. He's given all these commands, and we're going, right, right, right. And then he says, and don't covet. And suddenly it's like, wait. That, hmm, that happens just in here. That's something I do here and here. Like if we were talking about laws for South Carolina and we were like, and this is a law about property and this is a law about driving. Oh, and you're not allowed to think this. You'd immediately be like, I'm not allowed to think a thing? First thought might be, how are they going to catch me? I think whatever I want. The problem when God gives a law like this is that he knows what's going on inside of you. This is, in some ways, terrifying. He's talking about what's happening in your heart, what's happening in your mind, and he cares about it, and he's prohibiting things that can't take place inside of us, not just things that happen outside of us. And so this one's different. And suddenly, I think, rightfully, we should have a lot of questions. How do I know if I've done this? How do I see this in myself? One of the things I said when we were introducing the Ten Commandments was that much of American consumerism is based off of covetousness. We see something, we want it, we go get it. And immediately we had a lot of questions, and I think good questions. So I'm going to give you some examples of the type of questions that I was fielding after that week. And I know some of y'all have been looking forward to this week to try to see, how do I discern this? Someone said, okay, I want shoes. I need shoes. Not just want them, I need them. Mine have worn out. I have a certain type of shoe that I want, so I do a little research. I then see a person I know wearing the kind of shoe I'm looking for. 
I ask them where they got that shoe. I go buy that shoe. Was that covetousness? I think that's a good question. I'm at my friend's house, and he has an air fryer. (laughs) And I learn new information to me that air fryers can reheat fried chicken, which is a problem I've had my entire life. (laughs) On the off chance that fried chicken escapes the first plate, I'd like for it to show up on a second. But for anyone who's ever microwaved fried chicken, you know how utterly disappointing that is. So I go buy an air fryer. I don't wait till my friend's not looking, hit him over the head with a vase, and take his air fryer. I just go get my own. Have I coveted? I think we have questions like, Nobody asked me this one. I've added this one just to try to help us continue to think. But I think we have questions like, okay, leaving consumerism, leaving how we approach that and how we know about things. If I see an advertisement or whatever, we're going to talk more about that. But I don't want my neighbor's wife. I don't want my neighbor's husband. I just want my husband to be more like that. Is that covetousness? So what we're going to do is I have eight tests, eight questions for us to ask ourselves to try to identify covetousness in our hearts. Some of them are similar to other ones. Some of them are different. It's just trying to come at this from different angles to try to say, hey, if this matters to God and if it's something that happens internally and I won't always have external evidence of it, how do I know if I'm coveting? First test, are you desiring something that is not yours to desire? This one's pretty straightforward. But wherever there is scarcity, meaning some limited resources, you could actually say, no, I don't just want my husband to be like that. I want Carl. I want Tina. That's coveting. It's clear, straightforward. I actually don't just want a house like that. I want that house. And I'm longing for that house, and I'm trying to uh, work my situation such that I could eventually have that house. I want that job, so I want to get this person out of the job so I can have that job. That's coveting. That's specifically what he is talking about very clearly here. This happens when, on a small scale, when one of my children is holding a popsicle, and the other kid immediately wants a popsicle, as you do. And then the one with the popsicle says, oh, this is the last popsicle. And so now I, I went from, you watch a child go from wanting a popsicle to wanting that popsicle. <laughs> and so when that is happening, that's covetousness. And so that's one of the first questions to ask. Do I want that specific one that I would take it, that I would get it from that person, that I'm going to crave it, desire it? Second test. Are you willing to sin to obtain your desire? I think if you would consider this for a moment, you'll see that covetousness is actually behind much of the Ten Commandments. That it happens first. When you commit adultery, you have first desired your neighbor's spouse. We see in Joshua 7.21 and Micah 2.2 and in the story of Adam and Eve that they first desired a thing and then took it. 
So they coveted something that was not theirs to covet, that belonged to someone else, and then they took it. So that covetousness is behind theft and other types of disobedience to God. James 4.2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So that covetousness shows up in our actions. So let's say if we spent this past week realizing that there are things that you lie about, you slander people and you need to work on this. One of the things you need to do is not just go, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't lie about people, but actually go, why am I doing that in the first place? And go a level deeper and begin to repent of your covetousness. That you wanted this thing so bad you were willing to sin to have it. One of the things they look for in a lot of crimes is motive. And I honestly think if you're watching those kind of shows, one of the things you could replace that with is just what type of covetousness was present prior to this crime being committed? Was it financial? Was it relational? Was there adultery and then murder? That sort of thing. So are you willing to sin to obtain it? And I think it's worth understanding that even in the small ways that we sin, maybe you haven't committed murder, but in the ways that you walk around angry at your neighbor, that you might understand there's something underneath that. Third, do you believe stuff equals the good life? If you don't, welcome to the United States. We'll catch you up. Luke 12, 15. Jesus is teaching, and someone from the crowd says, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Jesus responds... To the whole crowd, he responds to that guy, but then he responds to the whole crowd. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For, which when you're studying your Bible, pay attention to words like for and therefore or because. Helps you understand. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think this one is very helpful for our air fryer question. Is it wrong to own an air fryer? I hope not. I own one. Is it wrong for me to buy into the lie that life is made better by stuff and that life is made up of stuff? Yes. And I should be on guard against that. But if we're honest... That's what we're trained in. If you could just have this new gadget, if you could just have this type of clothes, if you could just have this thing, life would be better. Life would be more full. If you'll consider how we think about things, when we hear that someone wins the lottery, we're like, ah, ticket to the good life. You hear that someone got a, a, a big promotion, they're going to make a lot more money. That's the life. When you dream about your future, is it just you with more stuff? What are you, what are you working towards? It's like, well, in 10 years, I'm on a boat. Well, there's a good chance that you've believed the lie that stuff equals the good life. That life consists in the abundance of possessions. This is what advertising does. It's what it tries to convince you of. A lot of products, if you'll pay attention to the advertising, 
it's not just saying, some, some of it does. Some of them says, here's the problem and here's how our product fixes that problem. But a lot of times the product just sells you on being a type of person or living a type of life. This type of man wears this watch. If you like skateboards, you'll like Mountain Dew or whatever. Or if you like Mountain Dew, you'll be cool enough to like skateboards. Their commercials are kind of confusing. But they're selling you on some sort of like car commercials where it's just cool people riding around in the car. They don't tell you anything about the car. You just know cool people drive that car. One of my favorite examples of this that has stuck with me forever. I used to work at Sears selling appliances. And so I'd be in the mall a good bit and I would take my lunch breaks. You had like 20 minutes to walk down, get some food, go back. And I would see people carrying Abercrombie and Fitch shopping bags. Like they went there and they bought stuff. Now, I don't know if Abercrombie and Fitch is still cool, but it was when I worked at Sears. It's a clothing company that sold expensive, cool clothing. On their bag was a guy with no clothes on. <laughs> the top half of a naked guy. And this is a clothing company. If you buy their clothes, you will be cool enough to not wear clothes. I don't... <laughs> but it proves the point that what we're being sold on is this is a piece of the good life. This is a piece of identity. This is a piece of who you want to be. This is a piece of fulfillment. And Jesus says, be on guard against that. And for us, that means 24-7 being on guard against that because we are bombarded with that message. So, maybe when you buy an air fryer, it was absolutely covetousness. Maybe when you buy those shoes, it was absolutely covetous. Maybe when you hear the words come out of your mouth, hey, where'd you get that shirt? It's 100% covetousness, and it's worth investigating and trying to figure out what's going on in your heart and what's happening in your belief system as far as where is life found. Four, the next three come from Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments. I thought he worded them well. I thought they were helpful tests. And so the next three are from, from Kevin DeYoung and the way he approached this in his book on the Ten Commandments. Number four, are you preoccupied with accumulating more? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your downtime? How do you spend the majority of your time? What do you daydream about? I think we'll find that there are times when we say, ah, I'd love to help. I'd love to be able to hang out with our community group. I'd love to be there on Sundays, but I'm too busy. I think it's always worth asking, too busy with what? What does your life look like? What are you preoccupied with? In the parable of the sower, Jesus says there's a sower that goes out and sows the word. And there's one where it believes the word and it begins to grow. And then it says, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out so that it is unfruitful. And some of you maybe are Christians and you've believed in Jesus, but you've bought into the lie. You're preoccupied with accumulating more. And that's what your time goes to. It's what your energy goes to. So what do you, what do you spend your time doing? What gets the bulk of your energy? 
I understand the Bible says that work is good and that we're to pay our own way and that we're to be busy. All those things are fine. But is that all you care about? Is that all you work on? I think asking the question, what do you daydream about, is a good question. Is it just you in the future with more stuff? Sometimes it gets real specific. You just daydream about how cool it would be to own a motorcycle. And y'all, we daydream about some stupid stuff sometimes. I have sat around thinking about how great it would be to own a shed. And you're like, that's a sad little life. Yeah, that sounds pretty sad just to be like pumped about owning a shed. But there are certain things that we'll sit and think, man, wouldn't it be great if I had this? Wouldn't if I did this? If I could. And so are we preoccupied with um, accumulating more? Can you not rest? Can't Sabbath. Can't take a day off. You got so much to do because your whole life is built around getting more. Fifth test. Do you lack generosity? Are you unwilling to give up what you already have? This is an indication that you may be struggling with covetousness. That you believe that life is made up in the abundance of possessions. And so therefore, anything that takes anything away from you robs you of the point of life. Robs you of life. And therefore, any amount of generosity is hard Hurtful, frustrating. You guard your money because your money equates to fullness, life, delight, joy. I think sometimes we say things like, I would, I would, I'd love to give to that. I'd love to get in a place where I could be generous, but my budget's just too tight. And so I think if that's you, Take a look at your budget because it'll tell you what you care about. We make room for stuff. I, in general, we're taught to make this much money and make your budget here. Often, we make our budget here and therefore we actually spend up here. But as Christians, we should make this much money and make our budget here. And if we start making more money, our budget can go up some maybe, but maybe what we give also grows exponentially that we get to be generous and so, if you can't be generous, there's a good chance that you believe. And I'm not saying if you make very little money and you're fine, but I, everybody can find ways to be generous in some form or fashion. And so, if that doesn't ever happen for you, and you've said this for years, if I could just get to there, but you've actually gotten a promotion, you've actually begun to make a little more money, you've actually, both of y'all are working now or whatever, and it still hasn't happened, there's a good chance you struggle with covetousness. Number six. Do you grumble and complain about life? Do you say must be nice a lot? Ah, oh, must be nice. This is where I think I don't actually want to marry that guy. I just want my guy to be more like that guy. I think that shows up here. I just wish that my wife cooked like that or would go get a job like that. I wish that my husband would treat the kids like that or would fix things instead of breaking things or whatever. What we often do when we're doing that is we compare somebody else's best qualities with somebody else's worst qualities. But do you find that you complain a lot? You grumble a lot. <sighs> I wish I had that car. Everybody else gets to have this kind of thing. Everybody else gets to do one of these. Like you spend time on Facebook and then you're just frustrated. Everybody else gets to go on vacation. Everybody else gets to smile in pictures. 
Everybody else smile, looks good in pictures. I wish I had those parents. I wish I had that hair. As if life, not lamenting sin, not lamenting the brokenness in the world, but lamenting your lot in life as if you're owed more and that everybody else is succeeding around you and you're the only one. As if, if you had those things, it would fix what's going on in your heart. So do you grumble and complain? I think this is where the TV show HGTV comes in, or the channel. I think you can watch that. You can learn things. It can be just whatever. So I'm, but I also think that you can watch HGTV and then hate your own house. I think you can go to someone else's house. You ever been to someone else's house and it's nice and you walk around and go, this is nice. Wow. And then you go back to your house and you go, what a dump. (laughs) Have you ever been mad at the amount of bathrooms your house had? Like, more people need to go to the bathroom in my house at one time. Or, or your functional, perfectly functional bathroom now doesn't have the things that it should have to make it feel like a special fancy. Like, this, that's this. Is this, I, I now have created a desire, a want, a frustration. And I'm grumbling and complaining and no longer content. And this next one goes with it. Number seven. Does the joy of others make you discontent? You ever been just having like a normal day and then someone else comes and has a happy day next to you? So your day is now worse? You ever been enjoying a meal, eating with some people, but there's that table that won't stop laughing and having more fun than you? And so now your meal is worse. I, my sons show me this stuff periodically, and I can see it clearly in them, but it helps me see it more in myself. But I know there have been times where one of my sons has to go to school, wakes up, normal day, rocking along, going to school, then suddenly discovers that his brother does not have to go to school. Whoa, 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 whoa. His day is now worse. He's going to do the exact same stuff. But somewhere out there, his brother is not suffering also. (laughs) And now things are worse. But we do that. Something that actually has no effect on our life whatsoever. But they have a new car. They got to go on a vacation. They got a promotion. You're hanging out with your community group. Someone announces something. You're like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, I'm so happy for you. But then you get in your car and you're like, why God? Why is it always them, never me? And so someone else's joy, rather than you getting to be included in the joy, makes life worse. That's covetousness. That someone else is getting married. Someone else is having kids. Someone else got a job. Someone else gets a vacation. And therefore, your life is worse. But that's not actually how it works. And the truth is, if we can learn to do what Paul says, which is to rejoice with those who rejoice, you can actually increase your joy by getting to share in the joy of others. So to tell my sons, if you'll learn how to have all your own victories and then share in your brothers, you'll get double the victories. If you learn how to rejoice when he rejoices in your community group, if you learn how to genuinely rejoice when other people rejoice, but so often it happens the other way because of covetousness. Number eight, 
Eighth test. Does what you desire make God-sized promises to you? Okay. There are certain claims, promises, that only God can deliver on. Hope. True delight. Satisfaction. Salvation. Fixing what's wrong with you. But then there are things that promise to do that for us. This is idolatry. This is, this is Paul talking about this. He does it in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So in the Ten Commandments, the first one was you will have no other gods before me, and the second was you will make no idols. You'll have no graven images. You'll have nothing that you look to and worship and long for. And then Paul is saying that's exactly what covetousness is. And that makes a lot of sense. That's why we'd sin to get it. If, I, if you're willing to sin to get something, it's actually because you believe that it will satisfy you in a way that Christ can't. So it's worth disobeying him. It's worth running from him. It's worth doing something that you know he says is out of bounds because you really want this thing. That's idolatry. It'll bring me more joy. It'll bring me more hope. It will fill me up. I'll be satisfied. So what in your life do you say, if I could just have blank, everything would be fixed? If I could just get this job, if I could just make this much money, one of the scariest ones, if I could just get married, oh, Lord, help your future spouse, because you need them to be Jesus, and they are not. If I could just have kids, oh, Lord, help your kids. You need them to fix what's wrong with you? You need them to satisfy, bring you hope? And this isn't just struggling in life and saying, Lord, help provide. I'd love to get another job and trusting in him in the midst of it. That's what Jesus prays in the garden. He says, if, if this can happen, but I trust you. But idolatry is, I just need this. I don't need you. And if you won't let me have this, then I'll get rid of you so I can have it. I'll sin to get it. I'll chase after it no matter what. You're, you're the one who's disposable. If you'll serve my real God, I'll follow you. But if you won't serve my real God, I'm out. This is why you'll sleep with your boyfriend. It's where your real God is. This is why you'll embezzle or steal or lie or whatever. It's because this is the real thing I want. And as long as God's lined up and helping me have the kids I want to have, then great. But if God won't give them to me, then I'm over here. This is why often when we get the thing, we don't need God anymore. We've got the thing we wanted. It's idolatry. And it can be seen easily at times. Sometimes we have little ones. Actually, I, I love this tweet because it just resonates with me so well. This is a tweet. In 1998, I begged my mom to buy me Jinko jeans. She agreed, but only on the condition we do a photo shoot to prove to my future self how stupid I looked. 
Look who's laughing now, Mom. I love this. I'm going to move out of y'all's way so y'all can appreciate Jinkos. Now, some of you are like, what on earth is a Jinko jean? It could be bell bottoms. It could be a perm. It could be a type of car. It could be a type of jacket. We've all done this. If I could have this thing. Y'all, I, when I was in middle school, I dyed just the top of my head white. <laughs> Why not your whole head, you ask? I don't know. I was in middle school. <laughs> and it was awesome for like a week. I was like, nailed it. And then I had to keep looking at myself, and I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> but your hair doesn't grow that fast, so you just have to deal with it, you know? Eventually, I had those little frosted tips, you know what I'm talking about? All right. This is a clear example of if I could have this thing. But y'all, we hadn't stopped since middle school. Some of us have just picked a bigger one. If you'd actually think back through your life, there's 10 things you've already gotten. And they just didn't do it. So you quit daydreaming about them. You quit putting your hope in them. And you just picked a new thing to put your hope in. And that's covetousness. And that's idolatry. Those are our eight tests. And I think if you take the time to consider them, they will help you figure out what is going on, what it is that you truly are chasing after, and whether or not you are walking in covetousness. But here's the wonderful thing about this commandment. I said at the beginning, it's kind of terrifying. Because God's looking inside of you and saying, this is a problem too. But y'all, that's wonderful. If the Ten Commandments were all only things that we did, rules about things that you're not supposed to do that mess up society, that would be good and helpful. But when he puts this one in here, he does something in the tenth and in the first that tie together. In the first, he says, you'll have no other gods before me. And when he talks about idolatry in the second one, he says he's a jealous God, meaning that he desires our affection. And when he gets to this one, he says, I care about your heart. You should look at the Ten Commandment, Tenth Commandment and know that Jesus loves you. That God loves you. You. That he cares about what is happening inside of you. Y'all, I care about my children's behavior, that they don't make my house a terrible place to live. But y'all, I care about what's going on inside of them. I care about their heart. I care about their relating to me, to their mom, to each other. And when God puts this in here, the Ten Commandments go from, don't mess up the nation I'm building, to, oh, no, 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 no. It's so much more than that. Because we would look at this as Americans and go, okay, I understand why covetousness is bad down the line. I understand how it can tear things up later if I steal or I murder or whatever. But just what's going on inside of me is my own business. This is a victimless crime. And God says, no, you're the victim of your own sin and your own brokenness. And you're robbing yourself of joy and delight and you're robbing yourself of me and I won't have it. And we know he won't have it. We know he cares this much about our hearts, not just because he gives us the 10th commandment, but because Jesus comes to earth to die, to claim us. To pay for our sins, certainly, but because he loves us and wants us to belong to him forever. 
He doesn't just come and say, I'm going to pay for your sin so that you won't be sinful and you'll quit annoying me and you'll quit messing things up. He comes and says, I'm going to pay for your sin so that you can belong to me forever, so that you can be adopted in, so that you can be my cherished possession. So that, as Paul says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is wonderful. And in Christ, we have hope that he redeems sinful, broken, wicked, ten commandment breaking rebels. And he does it because he loves us and cherishes us and is unwilling that we would love something else, but that we would know fully who he is and how wonderful he is. So the hope of finding out are we covetous is not so that we'll quit being bad, but so that we might delight in Jesus, who is the only one in whom we will ever find satisfaction, salvation, and delight. That we might clear out the clutter so we can have more of Christ. It's worth it because he's worth it and because he loves us enough to take our hearts and claim them. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would not covet, that you would help us to see it in ourselves, that we would repent of it, that we would cherish you above all else, that you would be our highest affection because only in you will we find satisfaction and delight. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us right now to help us to begin to see this. That you'd help us to grow and to fight against, be on guard against all covetousness so that we not, might know that life is found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come back up. In a moment, we're going to sing and we're going to take communion. Communion is a celebration, a practice of the church to remember, physically remind ourselves and physically proclaim that Jesus died to save sinners, to proclaim his death until he comes. And so if you are a Christian, communion is for you to partake in, in repentance and faith. So that you would take a moment to consider what Christ has done for you, the cost of your faith, and that you might repent, that you might come to him once again saying, I need you. I need you to work in my heart. I need you to claim my heart. I need you to keep me. And that you might proclaim to the world and to yourself, I, because of your sacrifice on my behalf, don't just need you, but I have you. That I get to partake in your salvation. And so we partake. And it's a physical thing that reminds you that you feel the reality of what he has accomplished for us. If you are not a Christian, communion is not for you, but Christ is. Communion is for Christians to celebrate what Christ has done, just as baptism is. And we would invite you to, to come to him and say, I need you to save me. I need you to change my heart because on my own, I won't. You could follow all the Ten Commandments to the best of your ability. You would still fall short and you would still not fix what is going on in you. And you would still miss the point, which is that Christ is good and he redeems sinners. So may you come to him and ask for forgiveness and ask for grace and trust in him today.
So take a moment where you are to consider, ask the Lord to help you, see where you are covetous, repent, and then delight in the sacrifice made on your behalf through communion.